Happy Friday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm your other host, I'm Chris Henry from the EAA Aviation Museum. And Jim, I, you know, I keep saying it, I know we're, <laughs> I know. we're in the last couple weeks it. here. We're that, in the last week coming up. Yeah, this is it. This is it. Yeah. And uh, it's hard to believe. Wow. Um, but I uh, I always say that I, I love the episodes where we have guests. And uh, we double down. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we have two guests with us today. Uh, first, we have John Oldham, Exhibits Tech at NASA Glenn. And awesome to we, be here. Thanks. Awesome. John, thank you for coming, buddy. And we have Robin Pertz, who is a... Library History and Records Supervisor at NASA Glenn. Uh, Robin Pertz, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. This is really exciting. And, you know, I, I, I love all the different research centers, and I always feel Glenn doesn't get enough love from the, the public. You know, I mean, when, Amen. When, people, when people step on the moon, they said Houston. If they had only said Cleveland, it would have been a whole different story, you know? Uh, or, you're actually Brook Park, right? I'm not sure Glenn is kind of on the outskirts of Cleveland. Yeah, so technically we're not in Cleveland. It is actually Brook Park. Our mailing address is Cleveland, but we actually have a facility out west near um, the everybody's familiar with Cedar Point out in Sandusky. So that's where our Plumbrook facility is. So we're actually kind of two two separate centers. Can you but see we... the roller coasters from your building? Can you? No. Oh. <laughs> no. Wouldn't that be sad to be able to see roller coasters all day and not ride them? <laughs> like, like there they are. <laughs> wah, wah. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's actually, if we could talk a little bit about Glenn. Uh, Glenn's one of the old timer. I mean, that that was back from the old NACA days. So, uh, what do they do nowadays in in the big you know constellation that is NASA? Robin, that's you. Oh no way, John! You've been around a lot longer than I have. Well, in a nutshell, uh, in the grand scheme of the the agency, we are the power and propulsion center. We do many things and, and more than power and propulsion, but in general, our big task with NASA as a whole is power and propulsion. So we do power systems uh, for Mars rovers or power systems for the uh, International Space Station. We did the solar arrays on the International Space Station. And and we do aircraft engines, a uh, little bit of rocket engine work, the RL-10, the, the all Almighty RL-10 was was a Glenn project, and actually before Glenn, it was Lewis Research Center. We've only been Glenn since I believe '97. Robin will slap me if I'm wrong, and uh, <laughs> we we um, we helped develop the the engine technology, the hydrogen technology with the RL-10 that still flies today. But uh, it, we're a busy center. We do wind tunnel research, icing tunnel research. We do a lot of research that translates into general aviation, and uh, but primarily power and propulsion. So really, you're the guys when when uh, JPL comes up with something that they want to land somewhere, you're the ones that figure out where to plug it in. Well, we <laughs> we test it. So interestingly enough, the the, the facility that Robin referred to, uh, Plumbrook Station, we tested the airbag system for the Spirit and Opportunity Mars rovers. They 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 have the world's largest vacuum chamber there, and we put that uh, system inside the vacuum chamber and bounce those airbags, drop them from a ceiling in vacuum in a 110-foot-tall facility under vacuum and let those kind of skip off some very sharp, angular Mars-simulated rocks. 
and uh, to see if they would hold up. So we we tested the system. So, well, as as we're speaking, uh, back in July, uh, we we just had the, uh, the 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 most recent Mars exploration vehicle, including the first helicopter going to Mars. Now, was that also tested at Glenn? No, that's a that's a California project. Uh, that was JPL. Those those okay. amazing people at JPL come up with those interesting concepts and, and build those and fly those. Uh, we, we, our hand in Mars rovers mostly comes in the power region with the RTGs or the MMRTGs that fly. So power system wise, that's, that's a nice tie in for Glenn. Wow. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it's always, you always think you've seen the most fascinating things in your life and then another, you know, another mission comes up and another mission and it's just, it, it gets, it gets wilder. Uh, the imagination at NASA is, is just fantastic that you see, something you know, a new way of doing things every time and it's it's not i mean there's so many different uh as i was saying before there's so many different uh, nasa research centers that focus on so many different things it's it's flabbergasting to try to figure out how people are coming up with so many new ideas uh to to take on you know age-old problems um but i guess you you work with a lot of smoke smart folks there we do you just we, you just like summed up my entire career in one <laughs> statement <laughs> When you think it can't get, when you think it doesn't get any better, it does. Wow, yeah, I, I I do have a question. I, as as a librarian, Robin, um, it, it, do you when you go to any library, do you always like walk straight to the uh, six twenty nine forty three section, or because that's that's what I do. I just, <laughs> my wife says I'm very judgmental, and I just I head for six twenty nine forty three, and then everything else I base my judgment on how. <laughs> That's arranged. I have done that. I'd be lying if I said I hadn't. But our library at Glen is um, obviously we only have nonfiction books. Um, so we use Library of Congress instead of those no. Dewey call numbers that you're referring to. And that's a super boring conversation. We don't have to get into that. Um, but, I, you know, I do. I always go to the space section and see what kind of books they have on their shelves that I can't have because... We don't have fiction books on our shelves at Glenn. All of our library collection materials and even in our history and our archives collection, it all supports all of our core competencies at Glenn. So all that power and propulsion, the materials research, all those things that John was just mentioning. Yeah, it's um, it's it's fascinating. Uh... I keep when you when you when you get in when you get into uh, doing uh, any kind of research papers, you always want citations, and I think that's one of the, one of the major things that I always look for in a library is like how many citations, and you probably have the gamut of every citation uh, possible for any anybody's papers. Uh, Glenn produces a lot of a lot of papers that that they distribute. Is that correct? We do. We absolutely do. And actually, um, because of all of this teleworking situation we're all in because of COVID. Um, a lot of researchers are sitting around at home and they're just writing. So that's great. This is a great kind of a, a downtime from folks being pulled out of their labs and out of their um, workshops at Glenn and they're sitting at home and they're they're writing and it's it's great. I mean, I think our, our research count is higher than it's been in a long time and really that just supplies the rest of the, the publishing world with great content for more research. Yeah, everybody's finally catching up with that paperwork that they've always wanted to do, or writing that paper that they always wanted to get around to. Now they finally yes. have you know, <laughs> all these story. Me in a room and do that. All these storyboards are finally on paper and on the computer. It's great. 
Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, I have a question. We're, we're you know we're, we're doing movies. Um, do you have other than I, I keep on thinking of librarians in movies, and the the two that come to mind are well, of course, Mary and the Librarian in uh, the Music Man, and then the uh, the poor fellow who's uh, stamping. Uh, due dates on uh, library books in Indiana Jones and the uh, Last Crusade while uh, Indy is punching a hole through the bottom of the library. Do you have a favorite librarian in movies? Ooh, that's a really good question. Am I allowed to say the librarian in the Ghostbusters movie? There that's what I was going to say, Robin. Oh, my I God. I knew Chris was going to do it. I could yeah. feel it. I could just feel it. She's yeah, the, the unsung hero. I love it. I'm going to come her. back and haunt everybody. I love the getter, Ray. That was your plan. Getter. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Well, uh, let's talk. This is, of course, the minute one thirty is the movie that is the, is the minute in the movie that um, I, I talked with when when we were doing the Rocketeer minute. Um, I talked with the, the director Joe Johnston. He also directed October Sky, and uh, there's the scene at the end of October Sky where uh, uh, Homer Hickam's dad shows up to help launch his last rocket in uh, West Virginia, and he puts his arm around his son's shoulders and. Uh, Joe Johnston called that a puddle minute. He said, "If he said, no matter you're the manliest man that ever lived, if you sit down in that and you aren't reduced to a puddle, then you have no soul at all." And this this particular <laughs> minute that we're watching here, this is the puddle minute of Apollo 13. I think uh, I, I don't think anybody's ever watched this without tears streaming down their face. Yeah, agreed. Um, and uh, it's it you know it's it's everything everything that's in the past two hours and ten minutes is built up to this minute. Um, do you remember? Uh, do you remember the first time you saw this movie? I do. Uh, okay. it, it was it was something I had waited for, having having actually lived through the the experience in real time in real life. I was I was a child of Apollo, born and raised in in Florida, and had seen the launch. And I remember vividly the events leading up to before the accident, and certainly after, and and obviously the day of the landing. But then there was this big void of the storytelling process that that I I had kind of a piece of that I had been waiting for. Doesn't everybody want to know this? And this was such a neat thing, uh, such a pivotal moment in history. And and when the movie was announced, I, I had heard way before it ever came out. I was waiting in in deep anticipation for that. So absolutely, I was I think the first one in the theater. It is an, an amazing amazing film, and it's surprising how. Anytime, and I'm sure as you know, as, as your your interactions with the with the public is, this is probably the movie that people reference more than anything else. That when people are asking you questions, this probably comes up frequently. Uh, as as an exhibits guy, you know, uh, Robin and I both have worked uh, side by side, obviously at Oshkosh Air Venture and some larger air shows, and it is probably the most um, go to. A quote or or moment that people come up to us with. I mean, you constantly hear failure is not an option, uh, in in those things from 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 the movie. But yeah, it's 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 obviously the forefront of what people recognize. There's there's the iconic meatball, and then right away you go to failure is not an option. Or they, I think probably the Apollo 13 patch is is one of the most recognizable because of that. Yeah, uh, th- uh, this particular minute as we're watching, um, it it begins at everybody's kind of it's, it's where everybody kind of leans in their seat when, when they're trying to figure out what's what's happening on the screen um and i we've told this story before but uh this movie is often shown when uh when the regular teacher is out sick and they sh- they have a substitute teacher comes in so they they put apollo 13 on the dvd player for kids to watch while, <laughs> while they're watching and unfortunately uh 
uh, we've had uh, so, someone came on earlier uh, in in the show and explained that uh, they would watch this movie, but their classes were only two hours long, so they never knew if the uh, if the Apollo astronauts ever landed. <laughs> they never get they never get to this particular minute because it was <laughs> ten minutes past the class is over. Um, but uh, fortunately, it, it's uh, you know this is definitely the uh, uh, the climax of the of the entire movie. Um, you know, you're talking about going to see it in a theater, and when it first came out, and um, you know, I, I admit I didn't know. Uh, the whole history of Apollo 13. I was, you know, early teens when the movie came out. Um, but I remember what really stands out with me, even to this day, about this film is my mom and dad took me. And my mom and dad um, were not aviation people. And, um, but this movie touched them in a way, and I, you know, it brought back memories, of course, uh, of them remembering this. But there were two points that my mom, I remember, got emotional. And one was liftoff, the launch. And the other one, she made it through this scene okay. Uh, the scene that she broke at was when, when an emotional Gene Kranz has to sit down. And that, you know, that hit her. That, uh, you know, that here's this tough-as-nails Gene Kranz. And, uh, and he held it together this long, but then he finally broke, which he really did. Uh, I, I, thought that was, I thought that was pretty cool that, you know, that, that's the scene that always sticks out for me, thinking about going to see it for the first time. And it's so well done. Everybody else is standing up. And yeah. He, he's, like, bearing this all on his shoulders to the point where he finally sits down. I thought there was probably been not much more ever said without words, you know, visually than that moment, at least for me in that movie especially. I asked yeah. him, I asked Gene Kranz what he thought of, you know, I was like, did that really happen? You know, and he said, yeah, it absolutely happened. And I said, you know, what happened you know and he said uh i couldn't explain it the emotions got got me he goes i sat down he goes and then i i had to stand back up because i felt like a like a fool sitting there in the middle of michigan <laughs> crying <laughs> he was allowed <laughs> yeah wow yeah if anybody was allowed to sit down at that point it was him i mean he pretty much carried that yeah so, amazing yeah just a great scene wow well um yeah We've, uh, Robin, we've talked about your your role as, as being a librarian and, and following you know the the records and archives. John, what what is what is your role at Glenn? What do you do there? Well, as an exhibits tech, uh, primarily my my main um, kind of job is to is to procure, maintain, display, and and talk about exhibits and artifacts that help tell the NASA story as a whole. So that that includes everything from a model to a moon rock, and, and I've handled both of those and everything in between. But as a, as a, a teacher by trade, my degree is in education, I, I came on board NASA Glenn uh, 17 years ago, I'm in my 17th year, and I, I brought with me a, a huge urge to tell the story and to tell it correctly. I, I think growing up with all of this, my stepfather worked on Apollo, I, I always felt like the story wasn't being told well enough. Uh, NASA is is amazing, and there's so many things to tell. It's such a hard story to tell um, that I think the the responsibility of of an exhibits tech. Now, I'm not a, a PAO guy. I'm not a um, public affairs guy, but I, I work in that realm, and I think it's the responsibility of all of us in each of our little parts to help tell the story as best we can. So I'm in a unique position to do that, to support with, uh, sometimes I'm, I'm loading exhibits into a truck or, or taking things down after a show, and other times I'm doing things like this, which is, which is awesome to me. But telling the story is important. So primarily my job is to maintain and procure those exhibits and those things that help tell the story, but also to be able to uh, translate the story. 
uh, as, as it happened and, and to answer people's questions. There's so many questions from, from the civilian public or people that maybe weren't born, um, not you, Chris, uh, before this, that, that, that don't have, that don't have the, the, piece, the puzzle pieces to go together to make the whole picture. And sometimes misinformation or not all of the information can, can really diminish the, the, the shininess of the story. So you, you said it earlier, uh, Jim, you know, what NASA does is amazing. I, I won't shy away from that at all. There's so many people and so many innovations and so much technology and materials and discoveries and history being made that it's, it's almost impossible to tell the whole story completely in any one place or time, but we can all do our part. So I gladly embrace that. Uh, John, I know uh, that the uh, the exhibits people at Glenn about a decade ago made a very difficult decision that uh, in order to make that outreach and move, and get more people involved that they decided to move a lot of their exhibits from from Glenn over to the uh, Great Lakes Science Center so that yes. they would have more traffic and things that must have been a difficult decision at the time I would think it was on a, on a personal level I had our, I was I was actually on board I was I was in the exhibits department then and at the time the exhibits manager that that was my boss. Had, we had just literally completed a renovation of the on-site um, museum. We, we had a, a visitor center on the lab, and, and thanks to 9-11 and all those problems, uh, we were one of the last holdouts to move our facility off the lab. So we had a lot of things that we had brought. Uh, again, my passion for, for uh, make sure that, making sure the story is told right, we had really refreshed a lot of the exhibits on-site to bring them out of the 70s and 80s uh, and, and into the, the 90s at the time, 2000s or early 2000s. And uh, that decision was made for the right reasons uh, by folks that, that really understood the, the complications of bringing the limited amount of people we could bring onto the lab because of security reasons was really um, sacrificial to what, what the story deserved. So moving things downtown, uh, it was a nice partnership uh, the facility is big. We get way more traction and, and folks there, and, and more people get to see the story, but it's really hard to see those things leave your care and, and go down the road, even even for a few miles. Yeah, I one of my goals, uh, my bucket list, is to visit every American spacecraft, and I remember looking up where Skylab 3 was, and it was like, oh, it's here. No, it's over there. So it's... Um, uh, I can imagine just watching watching those walk out the door must must have been a tough time. It was an interesting move, yeah. Um, but so, <clears throat> as you were saying, that the the changes in the way museums exhibit exhibit it used to be more like museums were like attics that you have things scattered around and you put it you, you just stick a, a caption on whatever it was to uh, say this is you know this is this widget or that widget. But nowadays. Uh, museum exhib- exhibitions are built more toward telling a story and understanding a, a more complete view of what happened in history and how the this particular object or article relates to the other objects that you have uh, on your displays. Could you give us an idea of, of what how you're how you're designing your exhibits nowadays? Well, sure. It's and it and it varies from from place to place and audience to audience. You know, you have to of course first consider who, who is your audience who. Who is going to see this exhibit and at what comprehension level? Uh, a few years back, we were lucky enough to be invited by uh, EAA to put an Apollo-specific exhibit into their uh, museum uh, on loan over the, the the course of the schedule that would include Air Venture. So we were faced with 
on one hand, uh, an audience of potentially 600,000 folks that visit that air show and complicate that with the fact that there were to be several and quite a few Apollo astronauts and sport folks there. I mean, living history walking through those doors. Uh, you have to consider, okay, do I, do I honor these folks that did this work and, and shoot way above the head of, you know, the, the person that, that maybe is hearing about all this for the first time, or do I, do, I, do I make a mixture of things? So what we tried to do with that specific exhibit, what we try to do with all of them, is have a mixture of artifacts, not too much text. You know, people, people tend to read so much when they have a, a limited amount of time in a museum. So you don't want to overword anything. You want to have a few really good exhibits that grab your eye. Artifacts love to do that. If Chris remembers, we brought an Apollo A7L spacesuit in there, an actual artifact. It was Bill wow. Anders' suit. Yeah. We had a moon rock on display. And then we had some signage and and some literature that supported what the program did as a whole. So it was a nice balance of, of wordage and information. And we let the visuals tell a good part of the story. Not unlike this scene we're talking about. This, like I said earlier, this the the audio is is really diminished in this clip. It's all visual, but it's such a, a bouquet of visuals that it tells this amazing story in a, in a single minute. It's it's just amazing. So. You, know, you can't obviously do that with every display, but we try to do that on a case-for-case basis. If you're going to an air show, you might have a 20 by 20 tent, and you can't you can't get too extreme in there. You have power um, conditions to consider. You have weather conditions. What's the floor like? What you know, all those things. At the same time, you're trying to to show to show these artifacts. You're trying to preserve them and protect them. Some of them are priceless. So, my favorite sure. moment uh, when I first met John is. Uh, just a wild ride that we went on. I picked him up at the airport, and uh, and he's just like, "Hey, you want to see a moon rock?" <laughs> you know, and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> so, and uh, the the other powerful moment in the exhibit that you installed here uh, was was walking around uh, in it with Frank Borman, and Frank we went over to I think there was an ascent engine uh, to the lunar module uh, in there, and Frank said we had such faith in the people that built these things he goes that you had to understand that this engine had to work 100 percent of the time all the time the and first time too yeah. right exactly yeah. and he said um and we gambled our lives on it because we trusted the people who built it and you know he, he was very adamant in his exhibit that his exhibit could be the frank borman exhibit when it happened but it wanted to he wanted to make sure that it honored you know the whole 400,000 people that worked on apollo not just not just Frank Borman, the iceberg on top. He was very adamant about that, and I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Uh, Robin, I have a question. When uh, you're, you do uh, library research, and you, you're, you're an assistant to people in, internal to NASA, and I would guess the general public also, you get, you get requests from uh, people doing scholarly articles or general, general information knowledge. So you have to be kind of a jack-of-all-trades with that annoying – not only what people are talking about in any aspect of of their uh, their research request, but you have to be able to find it quickly. How how do you manage that? In, yeah, in, you know, read a lot, I guess. <laughs> so that jack of all trades title comes with being a librarian anywhere. Um, yes. And to be honest, um, in terms of the public 
asking questions and me fielding research questions from the public, that's not really my gig. So I am happy to help public <laughs> librarians like, oh, here's all the publicly available NASA documents for you to help your researchers with. But typically I, I service, you know, our, uh, our, our scientists and researchers at Glenn occasionally um, other librarians, my other counterparts across the agency, we work as a great team together. Um, but typically, it, it's our, our folks on site. Um, one of my favorite things about being um, now the supervisor, but previously the science librarian at Glenn is that getting in on the ground floor, you know, so you get you get that initial research request. And then you help a customer do all of this digging and all of these primary sources and all this peer reviewed journals and talking to guys like John and his team over in exhibits and then seeing it come to fruition in a book that gets published or a paper that gets, you know, published about some great science or new technology that we're developing at Glenn. And then you sit back and you're like, yeah, I know I knew about that before anybody else knew about it. So <laughs> It's it's a great gig. You get to, you get to see the trends before they're before they're trends. Like Absolutely. I, I would imagine when when Artemis when Artemis hit, you must have started getting like snap questions and 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 all that kind of stuff. And all you're probably a couple of years ahead of us of what's what's coming down the pike. <laughs> yeah, and um, I think I think you know John had mentioned it before. It helps to have a passion for NASA. Um, growing up on the east side of Cleveland, I always wanted to work at NASA, but. Um, like John, I too was a teacher in a previous life. And I was like, well, if I want to be a teacher, I don't know what kind of a place NASA has for me. Um, NASA has a place for all kinds of people. I mean, obviously, you know, we have janitors and we have landscapers and not everybody's a rocket scientist or an author. So it's important for kids, adults, anybody to understand that NASA does have a place for you. And one of my things growing up I, like I said, I was a teacher and then I, I found my love for libraries and research. And when I landed the gig at, at Glenn, it was kind of a pinch me moment. So wow. it was like all of my cards fell into place and ta-da, here we are. I love the year that you were here, uh, Robin, the first year I think I met you. Um, it was the year we had all the astronauts here. And you know, I, we had a bunch of Apollo astronauts. We had Gene Kranz. My niece Abby is uh, is volunteering with me, and it's her first year. And I'm like, man, she's gonna be totally geeked out about meeting meeting these astronauts, you know. And like the week's over, and I'm like, okay, so what was the coolest part of the week? And I'm ready for, you know, I got to drive Jim Lovell to the airport, or you know, <laughs> something like that. And she's just like, I met Robin, the librarian at NASA, flat out, not even kidding. Like to this day, like that was her favorite moment she's a bookworm and just was like that was the coolest thing ever <laughs> chris i'm blushing right now i know you can't see me but i am totally blushing <laughs> <laughs> that's that, an absolute true story that and i you know i still am in contact with her and it's i i, I love the the passion that you know and it, it's one of those things people can go to work and you can do your 40 hours a week and you can collect your paycheck and that's fine but those of us like like john and i that do have a disgusting passion for the stories and and the agency and all the history that we do every day it it's infectious and it can't be faked and hopefully what she saw out of me was my genuine organic passion for my job 
and hopefully she in whatever capacity of life and and not just Abby, but, you know, all the the Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts and all the kids that we talk to throughout that week of AirVenture and every other outreach event we do, um, hopefully they get something and we spark some sort of light for them so that they can go and, you know, keep looking up. And Robin, what you were saying about, uh, you know, that there there is a place for everybody at NASA. If anything that Apollo 13 brought out is the, the massive number of people, as Chris was saying earlier, that uh, the astronauts were the tip of the iceberg. But there's there's hundreds of thousands of people that made all of these journeys and are continuing to make all these journeys possible as people doing the research like you are explaining uh, exhibits and showing other people what's coming like 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 John does. Um, I hope that in these past hundred plus episodes that we've been doing that we get that message out to people about how how many people are involved and it's from all walks of life. You, like you said, you don't need to be a rocket scientist. You you just need to have a, a really strong, sincere interest in uh, in the future and what's and what's going on and being able to impart that to others. I think you guys are doing really great work with that. Yeah, thank you. Um watching and, and you know obviously watching the movie and, and listening to all your guys's previous minutes um having all your guests and i i hope you get gene Kranz. i'm very excited for that <laughs> um <laughs> so that you know we can we can hear all the stories and continue to you know spark the imagination of future generations and john does a great job of that every day that he goes out and, and talks to public. Um, obviously, it's it's been a few months since we've all been allowed out and about into the wild, but we'll be back at it hopefully sooner than later. Ready to roll, <laughs> John. I saw I, I watched your video, the, your NASA video, where you were uh, painting the painting oh boy, the face sorry about NASA. your luck. <laughs> yeah, it was, no, it was good. It was good. I just I feel uh, <laughs> a fellow modeler uh, that we finally get finally get the uh, the recognition. And I know Chris Chris as a modeler too appreciates the ability to have a steady hand with a brush uh that was very absolutely does yeah, yeah. good work yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and john i'm sure you you know we are we are both of an age that you grew up with uh having a having a revel uh, gemini model and what. still have it still yeah. have it it's still on my shelf <laughs> it's uh it's just one of those things just uh filing down the, the little fringe on the but yeah. you're trying to get the little, the little tanks together with that. Oh, come on, make it round. Why is it not? And, and it's, you know, you know, we kid about that. But in the video, the key part about that whole video was there's a, a genuine learning element to being able to hold a three-dimensional copy of something in your hand and spin it around and see it from all sides. It's so tactile. And there's a part of your brain that that tickles that you just can't get from a picture or necessarily a word. You can't read that on a page. So modeling just really hits a part of our brain that I think uh, not many other things can. You know, it's, yeah. it's funny you mention that. One of the things at our flight school that we first did before we even got to fly in the plane um, when we were starting our ground school was uh, the guy who owned the ground school to make us go out and wash the airplane. Yeah, absolutely. And and just hose it down, you know, soap it up with some soap and, and sponges and and wash it, but you learn about the construction of the airplane while you're washing it. You don't realize it, but you're, you know, you're you're learning more about it than you think by just hosing it down and giving it a bath. And uh, and plus, the airplane got clean. But uh, yeah. um, it's the, the Mr. Miyagi method. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it, but it really on, was educational. Yeah. yeah, I mean, well said. That's that's it. There's something about putting your hands on something at whatever scale that that really brings that object and that 
and adds purpose to that object that that nothing else can. Yeah, I, it, it's funny how everybody I know that 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 does modeling. Uh, identified very strongly with Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters where he has the mashed potatoes and he just <laughs> yeah. starts carving out Devil's Tower. And I, I think there's a later scene in that movie where uh, he was talking about uh, he knew where uh, there was a crevice where they could hide from the, the helicopters flying. And the fellow said, I never I never knew that when I was drawing it. And he said, well, next time use a mod <laughs> build a 3D. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah it is it is amazing how much you learn just from just from putting together a smaller version um, uh, and being able to do it, I, I, I am I am very envious of your maker abilities in, oh, uh, in, in doing 3D because it, it looks really good. I've uh, I do most of m- most of my work nowadays I do in uh, in video work, and I really appreciate NASA's uh, kind uh, donation of many 3D models that you can download uh, direct from their site, so you can make your your own little command module or make your own little mo- lunar module um, in you know in in 3D or in a, in a virtual sure. 3D mode. And, and it works for us too, Jim. I mean, NASA's, one of their biggest challenges in the outreach department has always been budget. Uh, you know, we have a lot of expensive things to buy and, and build, so a lot of times there's not much left over for the models. In the old days, we would have a model of the LEM, for example, that we might have paid $1,500 for to have a, a decent representation, and you'd put that on a table and under plexiglass so that people could see it but you, you, you were very hesitant to hand that over to a fifth grader who might get the most benefit out of that, but if they break it, it's, it's quite the investment. Now we can print one on a 3D printer for probably under three or four bucks and pass that around a classroom, and if it gets broke, it takes us eight hours to print another one, or maybe 80, depending on the scale, but the, the cost level's way down, so it, it broadens the horizon of what we can do as exhibits techs and um, as a modeler, I'm happy to jump into that with both feet. I've put some effort into encouraging that, especially in our little group at our center. But I think most of the centers are catching on to that. And it's going to be a great tool. It's for all of us. Oh, oh for sure. Uh, Robin, I have, a, I have a question. This is actually a question I'm going to ask both of you, but I'd like to ask Robin first. Uh, you've got this great uh, research library, and I'm sure there are many um, antique elements in the in the library you know what first first editions or handwritten items what is your favorite artifact that you have in your library oh um i know that's like asking what's your favorite kid or something like that I, <laughs> um i would say my favorite artifact that i would define as an artifact would probably be the shovel that dug the dirt to build our center Oh, wow. Um, it's gold plated and, and we have it in our, our history and our archives. Um, that's probably my favorite thing. Um, as a massive uh, logo nerd, I would say my favorite book right now in our space is the we've got a reprint of the um, publication manual so of all of NASA's logos and insignias and the worm and all of it's oh, cool. it's awesome and I love flipping through it and seeing you know the different color values and the placement of uh, of where the logos go and the meatball and the worm and the use of official logos and it's it's awesome yeah, I, my my favorite I, I know there's always the choice between meatball or worm but I always like the shield the original. The, the original one that was was the 58 one before the meatball um, it just looks very very 50s feel to the uh, 
to the artwork on it. Yeah, I recently listened to um, uh, JSC, Johnson Space Center, Scott, Houston, we have a podcast. And um, they recently interviewed the guy that designed the worm logo. So it was pretty neat to hear his story about how he was, you know, retelling how the company that he worked for at the time got that got that contract and how they came up with that. And it's so simple and just very organic. And he talked about it. It was it was pretty it was great. Yeah, what an amazing what an amazing uh, task to be given. <laughs> just, yeah, <laughs> astonishing. Without uh, even but, knowing it. Yeah. Wow. Uh, John, now where? Uh, I mean, I know you, some of your exhibits have moved to Great Lakes, but do you have the ones at Glen? Do you have a particular favorite there? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many to choose from, and 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 most of the larger objects went to Great Lakes. Most of the the smaller, more portable exhibits stayed with us. Hands down has to be the moon rocks for me. Oh, yeah. um, I, one of my minor duties, and, and I, I shudder to say minor because there's nothing minor about it. Uh, when I first started there, literally probably day three, they said, now we have a, a few duties we're going to need you to do. We want to know how you feel about it. And I said, well, like for what example? You know, for example, what? And they said, well, we, we need a moon rock courier. And I went, you're, <laughs> you're kidding, which missions? And they said, well, we have Apollo 15, 16, and 17 rocks. Why? I said, well, I saw all of those leave the planet with my own eyes. And, and as a kid, I desperately wanted to hold a moon rock. I remember, um, and I know, Jim, you're familiar with the uh, Cape Canaveral area, uh, Jetty Park, where a lot of sure. people watch the launch uh, launches from, uh, used to have these big granite boulders out into the ocean, uh, sort of a fishing pier that you could walk out on. And Florida, as we all know, is a big sandy uh, sprit of, of uh, terrain. So a chunk of granite stood out really well and even as a kid I would go take a piece of that granite that I found knocked off of that jetty at Jetty Park and and pretend it was moon rock because it looked so different and, and oddly enough it was granite so it was pretty close but um, when I take the moon rocks out besides the overwhelming um, reception that people have to actual genuine moon rock for me personally I, I really wanted to hold a moon rock and when I could finally do that it's, it's still it has never gotten old but but yeah, Moonrock's hands down got to take it for me. I love the spacesuits uh, that we have. I love so many of the artifacts that we have. But Moonrock's, yeah, it's a hard one to beat. John, yeah, you're just always... bragging now. Nah, peace <laughs> off. <laughs> Want to see my Moonrock? My old Moonrock, right? yeah. That's his pickup line. Is Anthony, bad... he got me. <laughs> is, is it bad that I have names for him? Yeah, it's, you know, it's bad. Do you, uh, do you have, what are the names of your No, it's, I, I kid about So I always tell people, uh, this this one is 15058.192. That's, that's, that's my favorite Moonrock. That's, um, that's hysterical. Yeah, and, and it's genuine. I mean, that's legitimately what that rock is. But It's right from, right from Hadley, Hadley Rill. Correct, yeah. You got it. Yeah. Nice. Uh, is it a anorthosite or? No, I, I have an anorthosite, but my anorthosite piece is from 16. I have my 15 oh. rock is um, is just a boring old basaltic, uh, oh. you know. Darn. Wow. Genuine moon rock. But, uh, yeah, super boring. Yeah. yeah. I have, yeah, I have ma- major envy there. It's just, wow. Uh, Come on I, down. I always, I'm always, I'm always fascinated now are they are do you have them in the do you have them in the lucite pyramid they or? are in lucite yeah in in at least in the exhibits world there are only 10 uh what we call touchstones rocks that have been um made made uh, touchable uh, and even in that capacity they're very limited they're they, they took a, a smaller moon rock and sliced it in pieces and then embedded it in a big glass ingot so that literally just one surface, a smooth surface, is flush with the top of the glass. And then that ingot is mounted in this big uh, runaway with proof 
case and folks can walk up there and, and slide their finger in a gap that's not big enough to pinch that rock because people will be people and you can yeah. slide your <laughs> finger finger under there and touch this moon rock so there are 10 of those in the agency the rest of them at least as far as display pieces go are encased in that lucite you're familiar with yeah um i am always I, every time we go to kennedy and they have a little place where you can do that we're sticking your finger in like yeah. the little microscope slide thing i'm always amazed that that's the quietest place in uh, yeah. in the space center everybody get, gets like it's like a church you walk in and people just kind of put their hand in and feel and then they just walk away it, it's always you're absolutely right it's a very reverent thing um myself included <laughs> i mean you know yeah. as much as i carry those around uh yeah it's wow. yeah appropriate yeah appropriate. Uh, well, well listen uh thank you both for being on our show it's uh, we're wrapping up our last week here and uh it's I, i've been i've been wanting to get tell more than the story as we as we can do and uh chris thanks for inviting robin and john on. yeah absolutely good to have you guys both on i'm i'm honored to call you all friends uh, absolute pleasure back at you chris thanks uh, guys well, uh, for for folks who would like to talk more about uh, moon rocks and uh, their personal experiences with watching uh, all these apollo missions if you're old enough to remember these things uh it's always great to hear from you on social media please check us out on uh social media at facebook on uh, apollo 13 mission uh, apollo 13 minute mission control on Facebook or on Twitter at Apollo 13 Minute. Uh, you already know how to subscribe to this because if you've been listening before, you know where the previous 130 minutes are at Apollo13minute.com, so I won't even bother with that. Um, we will be back Monday with our final week, Chris. This is the final week. Countdown. Unreal. Can't believe the it. The countdown has started, so uh, we're going to have to hold it for the weekend here. It looks like we're coming up on Lost of Signal in about 30 seconds, so we will see you here next week for the final week of Apollo 13 Minute.